0: Yeah.
1: Welcome to the Babbelry, working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. As women.
2: Being a scientist can be so inaccessible. By telling the, the personal stories, I feel like that it, it sort of communicates that you can do it. There are so many ways to be successful as women, as, as scientists. And, and here is just this like beautiful compilation of stories that, that, that show that it is possible. This is
0: your host, Suki Wessling. Herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. I suppose I've known that there are herpetologists in the world much of my life, but I hadn't paid much attention to who they were until I noticed an intriguing publication, Women in Herpetology, 50 Stories from Around the World. Not only is this a book about the lives of herpetologists, but they are all women in a field that is heavily male-dominated, and they are women from all over the world studying a great variety of creatures. In this episode of The Babblery, three guests will tell us about their lives in a fascinating corner of the scientific world. Let's meet them.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Jess Hua. I am an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and um, in this role, I oversee a research program where we first uh, seek to understand how environmental change influences aquatic ecosystems, specifically amphibians, and then secondly, we are interested in understanding how non-traditional resources like art, graphic novels, and citizen community science initiatives can broaden participation in, in science. Um, and uh, I have been here for two years now and uh, really do love Wisconsin. Hi, everyone.
3: Uh, so I'm, my name is Umi Laila And yeah, so I'm originally from Indonesia, but somehow I, uh, Now, living in Germany, I've been 10 years living in Germany. I was studying before, like, for my PhD, but then I got a postdoc, and then now I'm basically uh, a researcher at the Leibniz Institute for uh, the analysis of biodiversity change in Hamburg, uh, Germany. And, yeah, I'm uh, interested in studying uh, amphibian and diversity in uh, Asia in general, but particularly Indonesia. I've been focusing my research to understand the... Uh, the diversity and phylogeny of like this uh, particular group of frog that is like from the uh, that has like special adaptation, you know, like so because they live in the cascading stream habitat, so they develop like a a unique adaptation in their tadpole. So their tadpole has like really big sucker in their belly to help them basically cling on a rock to not wash out. So then I'm trying to like understand how, you know, like everything about, like, uh, this Terpol and this group.
1: Uh, hi, uh, my name is Sheila, or Sinlan Pu. I grew up in Taiwan. Um, I'm a behavior ecologist and conservation biologist. I have kind of lived, studied... Um, all over the place. So in South and Southeast Asia and Central and South America, um, and then kind of in different places in the U.S. So I'm currently in Tennessee. I work for the Memphis Zoo where I'm the curator of research here. And then I have an adjunct position at Arkansas State University. In my role at the zoo, I would say um, it's kind of, uh, I wear a lot of different hats, but mainly is to do do research that, that shows us how zoos can be effective um, as a scientifically forward organization for in-situ conservation. So how can we use the information we know at the zoo to help species that are not doing so well um, in the wild? And then as a part of that, I also do a lot of outward-facing kind of science communication things to make people know that there is research going on at the zoo um, and that the zoo is contributing to um, conservation.
0: Here's Umi talking about the origins of the biographical book project which she started with fellow herpetologist Itsue kaviedes Solis. Before she approached Itsue, she says that people often remarked on her unusual choice of career and suggested that she write her story.
3: When I start uh, my career in herpetology it was like not so common in Indonesia you know so then kind of I always uh, you know like a uh, Telling my friend, you know, whenever I come back from the field, you know, or like uh, about like my journey in herpetology, you know, like I how I ended up, you know, like just studying this little creature. I can, you know, like travel all over Indonesia, the place that I have never been to or like imagine I would go there by myself, you know, and then it just like uh, happened to, you know, only because I'm studying this little tiny things that like people, especially Indonesia, find it, you know, like that like. Ooh, frogs yeah isn't that like disgusting I had that idea kind of like even more yeah like uh kind of like I think I need to write but maybe I don't want to write it myself you know maybe having like more people would be nice so then uh I been friend with Itsué, you know like for uh some years at that time and then so we traveled together in uh for the world congress and then so uh in one of the day you know like so we hike and then somehow i don't know it just like the 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 moon is just like make me just like oh maybe this is the time to you know like pitch to its <laughs> maybe she's willing to team up with me and then so like yeah and then so in one of this conversation i just like hey its i have this idea what do you think you know if we write a book you know like about uh, a woman in her pathology, how, you know, like we ended up uh, in where we are now, you know, uh, what do you think? And then so like, and they're like, oh, that's a really great idea. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, let's do it.
0: Umi and Itsue knocked the idea around for a while, but realizing they hadn't made progress, they reached out to their friend, Sheila Poo, who does research at the Memphis Zoo.
1: So Umi and I have known each other for, oh, it's been what, 14 years now, Um. Uh-uh. And so we first met uh, my first semester as a, a graduate student when I um, had just moved to Singapore um, from the U.S. We had, you know, a conference and we, we met and we actually roomed together after kind of only meeting for a day or so. We were young students at this workshop uh, and we've you know stayed in touch on and off throughout the years. There's not that many, you know, um people, let alone women, doing um, herpetology in, in Southeast Asia. So it's a very small group. And when Umi you know, called me uh, or said that you know I have a project idea, um, can we uh, talk? I thought, great, we have a research project. This is going to be wonderful. You know, we're gonna work on some amphibian project. I can do field work with her. I've always wanted to, you know, travel to these parts of Indonesia, and she was had just was either had finished or was wrapping up her PhD. I think. Oh, this is great. This is gonna be a great excuse, uh, um, to you know, do branch out in my work. And then she uh, talked about this. Um, so it came kind of out of left field. Neither of us had worked on the book before. I've never been on a project that was. Not focused on research itself, it is science you know communication or adjacent, but not you know it's not like our traditional science project, so I was like, "Oh, well, that's not what I was thinking of but but that seemed uh." <laughs> Interesting. I had met Izui, uh, uh, and so Izui uh, Caviar Solis, who is uh, um, an assistant professor at Swarthmore uh, College. Um, So she was a postdoc at Lingnan in Hong Kong, um, Lingnan University in Hong Kong at the time. So I met her for one lunch. Um, Didn't really know her very well, but it sounded like a great project. And Umi is one of, if not the most positive person I've ever met. So when she talks about a project that you just heard, there is this enthusiasm of, no, we shouldn't do this. This will be great. We can do this. Um, And this will be a great project simply because she's so enthusiastic uh, uh, about it. So so it was, yeah, I think I am maybe more uh, a conservative or cautious person uh, of the group. So I thought it was great, but I had no kind of concept of how we were going to even, you know, pull this off. And at, at the beginning, it was just a very simple idea of we don't see that many women represented in people that are successful uh, um, uh, in, in our field. Um, that comes with issues of, you know, when we have run into problems. So speaking for myself, when I've run into problems, I had actually just around that time went through a few cases where I wanted to seek um, advice from other people uh, and realized that my mentors wouldn't be able to give me that advice because it was these hidden barriers that they would have never come across. Um, so they really couldn't help, you know, say what you, should I do in these circumstances? Uh, um, not that they're not great mentors, it's just difference of circumstance. So it really just started with a very simple idea of seeing more representation uh, of of people that, that um, looked uh, like us, or looked different from what you would assume a uh, 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 person that studies or works with reptiles and amphibians would be.
0: One of the herpetologists that the team reached out to was Professor Jessica Hua at the University of
2: Wisconsin-Madison. I was so surprised. I still remember because it was Italy who emailed me and I was like, you want me to write a story? <laughs> I felt so like, why me? Because I to me, my journey sort of feels a little bit different than, than most people in that I, I, I feel like a lot of people in this field love herps. They, they love amphibians. They love frogs. And, and for me, I feel like I got so lucky getting into this field. I um, The reason I got into this field is almost 100% happenstance. So when I went to college, the reason I went to college was purely for athletics. I wanted to play basketball, and I, this was the institution that was going to allow me to do so. Um, and so like, I spent my entire first three years just doing the college athletics, and that was my focus. I also come from a refugee family, so there's also the the extra pressure of, what are you going to do with your opportunity? What are you going to do with your life? Um, And so I I did pursue biology because that was something that I thought my parents would be happy about. And so that's sort of when the, the two areas came together. I um, one of my teammates was like, if you want to be a doctor um, in biology, you should probably do research experience. And of course, everything was so far behind for me because I was just so focused on, on playing sports that by the time I applied to a research position, there were only two positions left. Um, I could have either worked with a plant or with an amphibian. And at that point, I I remember very distinctly. The reason I chose working with amphibians, it wasn't because I had any interest, it was because I thought, well, at least it will be less boring, at least they move. So my entire career in herpetology was based on on that perception. Um, and like in hindsight, uh, looking back, a, a lot of, of, of those decisions shaped how I run my lab now. Um, I I care a lot in that, um, that, that research experience. We, we looked at how road salts influence amphibians. So that has shaped sort of the way I think about how global change, environmental issues from pollutants to, to climate change, how it affects these really critical organisms in our environment. But also the fact that I knew nothing about amphibians, I knew nothing about research. That really is something that shaped the second aspect of my research program, which is how do we get people to care about these topics? How do we get people to even understand that this is something that is important to protecting amphibians? Why should you protect amphibians? I think what Sheila said about, uh, or or Umi said about, these are so gross. Like that is absolutely something that, that goes through my, my, my family. And they're so cool. I went not have so when I started, but now, now I definitely do. Um, so yeah, I, when Isui first reached out to me, I was like, "I, are you sure?" <laughs> I did. there are many people who care a ton uh, and, and have been passionate their entire lives about this. But all in all, I've been so grateful, um, mostly because I have seen that there have been so many ways to success um, in, in, herpetology and, and just so many incredible women that is just like this community that, that all of a sudden feels like it has been built overnight. I know it has not been many, many years of, of, of work, but our first, um, I'll never forget our first Zoom meeting altogether. I, I've never felt so connected. It was so cool. The
0: goal of publishing the book Women in Herpetology, 50 Stories from Around the World, was to create a book that was biographical rather than scientific, to document the lives of women working in their field in order to create a sense of belonging that none of them had had in their early careers. They wanted younger women to read the book and see models of how a scientist could be.
3: People know like folks out there know about scientists, they always know you know like us through what we write, you know in the scientific publication, you know, but then like no one really know like how these people get there or what is like the 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 story behind whatever they read, you know, so then I guess in this case for me it uh it just uh it's probably like easier or more appealing to know like because someone not going to be there without a reason. Everything has a reason, everything has a process. And then it will be, you know, like much more, uh, it's it just like nicer or like uh, easier to connect if you know like the story. Yeah. And then so every every person has different stories, how they get there. And then, you know, in this case, sometimes or like, I looking back to my experience and then I can also know like relate to what uh, Jess just said because you know like oh either plant or amphibian I mean that was what happened to me as well because like even how I studied amphibian it was also like accident and then that's why I always like tell people that I uh, that I actually like trap you know like to study amphibians and then later I I just trapped myself, you know, that's why I stayed. Because it was also like coincident. Uh-huh. It was just like an expedition and then like it was my friend was supposed to go and then she told me about this expedition and then I reached out to the professor and then he just like gave me this option. If you want to join the expedition, you need to study either amphibians or snakes or lizard, you know, and, that's it. and then I told him like, oh, I like plants. <laughs> and it's like... Uh-huh. No place for black people. (laughs) Yeah. So then, you know, just like from that one story of myself, then I realized that like, you know, the story behind everything that uh, what you see now, it's like, I guess it's more important because it's giving you explanation. Mm -hmm. So I guess that is like one of the reasons or, you know, like the connection and then that's why, you know, like, as Jess also mentioned, that, like, see suddenly, like, feeling the connection mm-hmm. when we all, like, first gathered, you know, like, with yeah. other people. Yeah,
1: it is a sense of community that 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 um, was kind of unexpected that developed um, from this. But I did, did want to um, talk about a couple of things. One is, um, Jess, that's... Great that you, you know, thought why we picked you because on our end, just so you know, we were thinking that people must think we're spam. We're emailing people, asking for them to spend time writing this thing for this amorphous book that may or may not appear in three years of these, you know, uh, oftentimes people you haven't heard of are like, this is just we people are going to think that this is some sort of scam. Um, so that was kind of what, what, what we thought on, on our end. That's um, hilarious. <laughs> uh, and we
3: had someone, we had, we had one of the author, you know, mm-hmm. Like a, a candidate that we email, you know, and then she replied to us, "Are you a spam?" <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Yes, literally. And then it's like, no, we are real, <laughs> you know. And then though she ended up like not joining, you know. And then, but then she, you know, like refer uh, put us in touch with like the other person. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah. But yeah, and then
1: uh, uh, <laughs> going back to kind of making it more of. A, a personal biography or narrative, rather than a kind of a science-heavy book, I think that part that was also a discussion. Not everything actually was a discussion amongst you know Umi, and, and I. Uh, um, and I think the discussion of making it more uh, of this you know first-person narrative is that we wanted the audience. So we thought about you know who we would want to read uh, on this book, and we wanted it to be people, uh, um, you know, obviously everybody, but geared towards uh, um, the reading level that's high school or college, somebody earlier on in their career where they can see this representation and it might make them, you know, think differently uh, 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 um, just about the world around them or, you know, uh, 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 people that they kind of hadn't really thought of in one way or another before. Um, So I think that was also partially why We made a very conscious choice that the language would be, you know, um, easy to understand and and, uh, aimed towards kind of a young adult um, level.
0: We'll be right back with a day in the life of a herpetologist. speaking with three herpetologists included in the book Women in Herpetology. You might expect that these women grew up fascinated by snakes and frogs, but you'd be wrong. Sheila Pooh, who does research at the Memphis Zoo, chose her field for a rather unusual reason.
1: I th- I'm sure for different people in different professions or different walks of life, there's this myth of what is the perfect perfect form of it, right? So for a professor, let's say a research professor in biology, um, the picture is often drawn of a person that you know loved this biology as a kid, was out in the woods and you know, as a five-year-old, you know, let's say, caught a frog and decided that this is what they were gonna do forever. I grew up in Taipei City, um, which is this vast metropolis and it's not, no, it's not something that it's not even something I thought of when I first went to college. And then you realize that there are other people, you know, I read just a story and I realized that there are other people that you kind of fall into it. And it's a perfectly legitimate way to build a career, but you don't often hear of those. I was an undergrad uh, um, and I was in a biology class. Um, I should say that I picked biology because I um, was a international student uh, studying in a second language. And I thought, well, biology is easier to study because... History is so subjective and, you know, literature is based off of your upbringing and biology. I just need like a dictionary I can translate and I'll be able to learn all of this. So I, I, I you know, switched fields, decided I would take some biology classes and the graduate student came into our classroom uh, and wanted some extra undergraduate labor, um, free labor and said, here's a picture of a frog. Does anybody want to volunteer in my lab for free? And I thought, well, that sounds fun. I mean, I (laughs) didn't even know that that would be, you know, a valuable thing to do. I just thought I had some extra time and, you know, why not? Uh, um, And that, you know, that to now what has been a career. So it is really by happenstance.
0: It's interesting to me that, that I know from years of interviewing women and men that it's a more common career path for women to fall into something unexpected that men (laughs) and it's a little hard to it's always hard to tease out these nature nurture things but but that men seem to be more directed to making a decision about something that they're going to do early on and um be staying focused and i have known men who have made mid midlife career switches, um, often because they were pushed into something they weren't particularly interested in. <laughs> um, but but women, it just seems to be more organic. Like It just seems to be part of women's lives to do this, which I, I find fascinating. Did you see that in the stories that, that you got for the book? That Were there a lot of women who fell and into more it in than, unusual ways? Yeah, more than
1: you would yeah. think. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, uh, more than what I have been led to assume. You know mm-hmm. because I think, as a student, you look to your teachers and your teachers have obviously chosen the professor uh, like the profession mm-hmm. that they're in, and it, it seemed like it's something that was very logical uh, um, from for uh, for all of them, and also your teachers have probably all been studying this thing for the last forty years or something <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, um but but reading the stories, yeah it was there was a you know more people than you would you would have thought. That It was some opportunity, of course, there are stories of people that you know went out when they were five and and, and decided that this is what they were going to do. Um, I personally always wonder if that is something that you almost self construct in retrospect, but yeah, I, I think there was a mix uh, of of all the different types mm-hmm. of ways that that people come to what do what they do. Yeah.
0: I asked the three scientists to talk about their daily lives because one of the things that's so fascinating about their careers is how varied their work is. Field research is a huge component, of course, and that sometimes means travel and adventure. Lab work can mean long days focused on minute details. Teaching is a social activity that draws scientists out to learn from each other. And, of course, there's real life. Let's start with Jessica Hua, who's a professor with a very full schedule.
2: So some preface, I uh, am a mom, I have two young children, so that's going to integrate into a day in the life um, of, of my job. So typically, my job entails you um, research, teaching, and service. So when it comes to the, the research aspect, I contribute by training my graduate students, serving as a mentor, but then also uh, I I write a lot of um, research up. So we do experiments and then those turn into publications. So in the morning, that's when I'm the freshest. I have the most mental capacity. That is before everybody, anybody wakes up early enough to send me emails. My kids are still asleep. That is when I do all of my deep thinking. That includes things like writing, editing, uh, thinking about experimental designs, um, writing grants. That is before nine o'clock. Then it is getting my kids ready, taking them to school, to to daycare. From there, it's my day will transition into meeting with my graduate students, my postdocs, thinking about what cool science we're going to do, um, what communication projects we're going to be working on. We work doing experiments, we work in the field, we work by putting on art shows to help communicate science. Um, So that's what I love about my job, that, that middle section, it's people that I that are, care so deeply about what they're doing. Um, and it's always different every day. So I am never bored. So um, that middle section is research, interacting with people, and then also teaching. I teach a class in ecology, pollutants, and you. It is a class thinking about what pollutants do to the environment, who is responsible for protecting the environment, and how do we take what we learn in a college setting and communicate it to the broader public. So we talk a lot about how being in the university setting is a privilege. We have the time to think and read to to understand, but how do we take that information and translate it so that it is accessible to the broader public? So that's what I I am currently teaching at the moment. Um, So teaching and research in the middle, and then more childcare, And then, of course, I'm never going to be one to give up my sports. So I do (laughs) play a lot of basketball still. Um, I uh, started pickleball just like everybody else in this country, um, which is fun. And uh, ultimate frisbee is something I play quite a bit in the summer. Um, And a quick shout out to a new sport that I've discovered. It's called Gaelic football. I think this might be the most fun sport I've ever played, and it's impossible to describe. So if anybody is listening and curious, Google it. Just just it. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> You're promoting <laughs> <Well, rewarding> it. <laughs> it's, it's fun. Yeah, oh. so that's my day. Here's
0: Umi Arifin talking about her life as a researcher in Germany.
3: Well, I mean... I'm impressed with you. I mean, like in general, okay, I can uh, start my, uh, you know, like my day by uh, before I uh, telling you about like my day. I think I would really, you know, like say my admiration to like any mom, you know, (laughs) who is, you know, like doing things at home, but also like doing whatever they want to do. Like Jessica, you know, I mean, like every time I listen, like someone, like a mom who like explain how they day look like you know it's just like wow you're amazing your day is like really structured I guess it's like you know because you have you know like the things that make you you know like able to structure everything a little bit better than like me let's say in this case I'm you know I don't have obligation yet with like family so basically I have the whole time 24 hours just for myself so then I have like my day and my uh institute is just, like, for me, for doing research. Either, and then it's, like, depending on my mood, let's say, okay, I start with, like, emailing, for example, when I get here, because, okay, then I see which one I need to reply first, and, and then I could see, like, what I need to do, what kind of, like, deadline is approaching. Let's say, oh, do I have a live work today, you know? Then I could schedule that, you know? And then, or I need to write, like, grants or... Whatever, So then I really like start my day like to put like my to-do list and then what is like the the approaching deadline kind of, you know, and then either I do like lab work or, you know, like a writing grant or writing a a paper, you know, or even like reviewing a paper, you know, or sometimes let's having a meeting with my supervisor, you know, like to talk about the progress or even sometimes, you know, because... I, yes, I'm based in Germany, you know, but then I, my, my research focus is Indonesia. And then I kind of like, I don't know, it's just like I have uh, the calling, you know, like to still uh, put in touch with like people in Indonesia. So I also like want to share what I have, you know, like my skill, my knowledge to help people in Indonesia whenever they need, you know, so I always like tell my colleague if in Indonesia, if they ever need me for doing whatever, just tell me, and then that will be, like, my priorities. I don't have, like, really, like, a typical day that this is, like, my typical day. Just, like, I do whatever I need to do in that day. And, and other than that, in my free time, I try to really, like, balance. So sometimes I go out with my friends, you know, and then, like, or doing sport or, like, a go hiking or biking because I like biking. And so I have my bike, and then during summer, I would just, like, go somewhere and then that's also like the benefit of like, you know, being in Germany, transport is like really affordable. So sometimes they want to go hiking like a little bit far and some not to reserve or even cross country. I just like put my back on the train and then like go.
2: Can I just say something really quickly? I I just think this is the beauty of being a, a woman in science, like just to reciprocate the admiration. like Our our approaches are so different yet the impact, like, look what you're doing. Like, it's, it's so incredible, the impact that you're having through this book, through the people in Indonesia. So I, I just wanted to, to say that, like, you, maybe you admire me, but, like, the things that you do are so, so cool. Sheila Poo, one of the herpetologists who
0: edited the book Women in Herpetology, 50 Stories from Around the World, says that the lives of the creatures she studies dictates the rhythm of her work.
1: Uh, my day? Uh yes. I can I kind of talk about the year instead of a day because I think uh, it it is more seasonal. um, The work that we do, uh, especially a lot of my work, uh, revolves around reproduction, and that is very seasonal for the species that we work with in the temperate zone. So I think I kind of think about my work in in that sense of what I'm doing this season. So for instance, we're in January right now. The frogs are mostly underground, uh, the ones that I'm working with. They're preparing for breeding, Uh, so this is a time where it's quieter for me. I can do more of my writing and data analysis and work on different projects and grants. And then um, by about March, the frogs will be laying eggs, um, the dusty gopher frogs, which is a species that Memphis Zoo uh, um, spearheads. It is a critically endangered frog species in the U.S., and it's a species we're working on breeding and reintroducing into the wild. So um, they will lay their eggs around March, which means that the husbandry staff that I supervised will start getting really busy. We will have, you know, a few thousand tadpoles. Um, that will turn into a few thousand froglets that, that we're rearing. So that will take us through most of the spring. Um, at the end of spring, we start releasing these frogs into the wild. So there's field work involved in that. That is also when I start taking on summer research interns. So that is really my opportunity to have uh, interaction with students. I don't teach a class, but so this is, you know, my main mentorship goes, comes through these uh, student research internships, and I—that's one of my favorite parts of my job—is having students around, having you know them develop the, their projects, and uh, and seeing how excited they are about the things that that you get a little bit jaded or or you just don't think about anymore because you've done it a dozen times. So that lasts through most of the summer. Summer is also a time where we'll have conferences and, and all these other gatherings, but m- mostly summer, I think spring and summer is um, time for fieldwork um, for us. And then in the fall, things will start to calm down a bit. Um, you kind of wrap up the summer fieldwork. You start working on manuscripts with students, and then you start thinking about um, what the next year uh, will bring. So I guess that is kind of wraps up the work that I do.
0: And I I love how it's, you know, that you put it in seasonal because you're working with creatures for whom the seasons are so much more important than for humans, modern humans at least. (laughs) We've we've done a lot of work so that we're not at the mercy of the seasons.
1: Yeah. And I, I'm sure, you know, Jess and this you know, is that whenever we take on students, the first thing you say is your schedule is dictated by the animals or the subject that you yeah. work with. Right. Yeah. So exactly. um, especially the stuff that we do, you know, it's not when when the. When you're working with live animals, it's not a nine to five job. It is not a mm-hmm. Monday to Friday mm-hmm. thing. You, you know, for us, you know, we work when it rains, or we work at night, mm-hmm. or we work whenever the frogs yeah. breed. It really depends on these things. And I think that is what keeps it exciting. Mm-hmm. Is that, that there is a unpredictability of it. I love a good logistical juggle. I some <laughs> I find it very satisfying. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it is it keeps you on your toes. Uh-huh. So I, I want to stick with
0: you, Sheila, because you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting, and it connects with one of the questions I have, which is, I wanted to ask you all about your experiences as a female scientist in the field. Herpetology is one of the least gender-balanced scientific fields. And one of the reasons seems a little obvious because we, you know, culturally, I don't know about the the Asian culture's that you all come from originally, but um, at least European culture, this, the whole, you know, what, what are little boys made of? They're made of snips and, snails and puppy dogs' tails, right? And that there's this idea that boys like these gross things and and girls want to stay clean and, and dainty, which of course is ridiculous. But but you mentioned, Sheila, um, the hidden barriers that you said, you said that when you wanted to seek advice about hidden barriers, your um, advisors, male advisors couldn't really talk to you about that because they were hidden to them. So what, what has been your experience as a woman in your field?
1: I will focus on women, but I think when I was talking about it, it wasn't just that my male advisors, you know, my advisors, regardless of gender, wouldn't be able um, to, to give advice. I was, am a a, a young Asian woman. uh, uh, And, and that I think that is comes with its own barriers in, in the environment that I work in. Uh, somebody had asked me once uh, uh, of what I think, how we're valued. I think we're valued differently um, because of our gender, because of our age, because of our race. Um, one of those things will change and hopefully I'll be uh, older and know how that would differ, <laughs> but the other two things I can't change. Mm-hmm. So so it's a little bit hard for me to really know what the other side Uh, of that looks like. And I think that, yeah. And I think personally, it took me quite a while to realize that that, that was even a barrier Um, because you're looking outwards. Um, So especially in the, uh, uh, you know, I I came to the U.S. for undergraduate uh, um, education and you sometimes don't see how different you are. You don't really see how other people are perceiving you. Um, So, so I didn't realize that, that oh, this might have been perceived differently or, or, or these barriers that are in place that, that, that people seem to, things that seem to be reachable for others was somehow not easily reachable for me um, because, of these, because of these things and gender being, being one of them. Um, but I think gender by no means is the only thing and it's hard to me, for me to disentangle how much gender versus the other things are playing into this.
0: We'll be right back with more Herp Women.
1: You are listening to The Babblery.
0: This is your host, Suki Wessling, and I'm speaking with three women herpetologists. We've heard a lot about their lives as scientists and also the unusual career paths that many women scientists take. In this last segment, we discuss the invisible overhead of being a woman in science. Women have the experience that male scientists are taken seriously by default, whereas women have to continually prove themselves. Women are put into the position of wondering whether an offhand comment was meant to slight them or whether their application for a grant was considered less seriously because they're a mom. In this last segment of our conversation, we talk about how they have had to adapt in order to succeed in their profession and some of the ways that others could create a more equitable and welcoming workplace.
1: I'll give a, I mean, we've been talking quite generally and it's easier to talk in these general terms. So I'll give a very specific example uh, for me is that I had an instance where where I had a, um, a very harsh comment from somebody uh, professionally about um, my language abilities and, 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 you know, some criticism of, of not being a native English speaker. Um, and that's when I realized that, oh, all of my, uh, uh, mentors were native English speakers, so I can't really ask them in this instance what I should do. And sometimes it's not this general of how to make me feel better. No, it's not like that. It's specifically, uh, strategically, what you should do with your career. Is this uh, something that I should complain about? Is this crossing a line or isn't it? But it's a line that they don't see, so it's harder for them to tell me: Is this experience re- within reason? Is it not? Um, so I think in those circumstances. Uh, what would have been helpful is to have somebody that to that is a little bit more advanced in their career that shared that trait with you, whatever that trait might be.
2: Yeah, I, as Sheila was talking, I I sort of started thinking about some of the challenges associated with what might be extra. So I, I sort of categorized them as outward challenges and then more the the subtle challenges. And for me, the outward is easier to handle. So outward challenges might be missing out on opportunities because somebody might expect that you can't handle the field fieldwork. Um, and that's something I think is easily correctable and be like, yeah, no, I, I can. Um, the subtle things I think are much more challenging because you don't realize that they affect you until it, it may be too late. Um, And I think one example of that is I do find myself code shifting. I I straddle two cultures, I, I straddle my, my, my my Vietnamese culture, where there are things that are polite in this culture, but then would not be polite in other cultures. So the example I always like to give is the eye contact. It is really impolite to to provide eye contact in my home culture. And so it's something that I had to to figure out and and learn to do. It is impolite to voice your opinions often in my family, right? Like it, it is a very hierarchical system. And so in academia, if you don't voice your opinion, if you don't communicate, mm-hmm. it, it, the perception is maybe they don't understand, or um, they're they're not standing up for themselves. They don't want this opportunity, and so I do find myself code shifting now that I have learned what what each culture requires, um, and, and that is an example of something that is subtle because it is something that is an additional thing that I have to think about. It's it's natural now, but it is something that I have to think about. That is an extra thing that can be challenging, and I think that I, I only recognize this when I was finally in a room with people that are similar to me. All of a sudden, I didn't have to like mm. uh, like it was like this burden that was lifted up. It was like everybody here already understands and already like probably already does this. And so this is just an example of how, like that extra effort that you have to put forth um, to be in a similar situation as, as others in the room. Specific to me, uh, I think um, an outward thing that has happened is I, when I became pregnant with my first child, I had a colleague come up to me while well, my partner, my husband was right next to me and, and asked me, "Well, oh, are you sure? I mean, I wouldn't have, I would have never done this, uh, pre-tenure and I was standing there and I was like, oh, thanks. This is (laughs) great. Are you going to tell my husband that
1: too?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was just an example of like, all right, like it, sure. But that doesn't quite bother me as much as, um, challenges where like, perhaps sometimes people view me as more approachable. Um, and, uh, ask me to be on more committees. And and that, like, I'm really excited by that, and I'm very happy to contribute to that. But you can see that by disproportionately asking women to do certain committee work, that takes away from very valuable time that I could be contributing to other aspects
1: of my career that could help advance my career. You didn't say this directly, but there is something about... I feel like as a woman in, you know, the biology and science, I often feel like my abilities or respect in the field, it needs to be earned. And somehow the same yeah. respect is freely given to any male that walks into the room. So, so there is that. And then, then that way, because of that, you have to do extra because you have to earn your credibility. Um, so then the time that you're spending to do that, somebody else is already ahead. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. To add that, I mean it. It's really true that like culture and upbringing are really you know like uh, influence that you know because yes like a, it's like a from outside but then you sometimes or at least what I feel it's like I sometimes have my my inner conflict you know because let's say I I'm kind of like an introvert person you know so i don't like to be like in front of the stage and then like people like seeing me and then even talking like this it's just like you know i was like so nervous at the beginning oh what would i do and now it's like a little bit better you know because I, I change because I train it, you know, because, like, that's what people expected. Like, if you're a scientist, let's say, you have to be, you have to be outspoken. And then not all people can do that. It's dependent on, like, where you're from, let's say, like, what what is, like, your culture, let's say. In Asian culture, being, you know, like, uh, outspoken, it's, like, a really no-no, especially if you are a female, you know? And then, like, even not only, like, to look at, like, in the eyes, but then, like, even whoever, like, above you, like your brother or, you know, like even your mom, you cannot say no. And then, like, imagine how complex is it, you know?
0: So you're a Muslim woman scientist working in Germany. So you are not a native speaker of German. You are visually not German. And you also wear clothing that identifies you with a religious group and how does that affect your how how you feel like you you are taking part in the scientific community there in Germany
3: it's not easy but you know I just like remember one funny story when uh, me and Sheila was at uh, one of the conference in Spokane you know and then we went to meet but then <laughs> I was know, thinking about we, <laughs> When we met, it's like, see, I can easily recognize you because there's like only you with like certain, you know, like appearance, and I can easily find you.
1: And I'm like, yeah, but so this is an instance where, where, where it is what I was talking about. You look out, right? So you don't see yourself as being yeah. different when you're looking out at these people. You go to we go to conferences; it's majority white. Um, and we, I was at this conference with Umi, and, and she was telling me that, "Oh, I feel so bad that other people remember my name, and I don't remember hmm. their names." And um, you know, people that I've met once. And I said, "Umi, you're the only person that's wearing <laughs> that walking around because it is that obvious, and and you do stand out. But oftentimes, you don't realize that 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 is you know, it's perceived as different because you don't you don't walk around with a mirror looking at yourself all the time.
3: Let's say you know, being in the field with, not to mention just like the only girl in the team you know and then okay to make it more complicated that like the only person in uh the only female in the team but also the only uh you know also like with uh a foreigner for example like people uh, international researcher from the u.s and, and then you just kind of like suddenly have it's probably just like my own justification that I feel judged, although probably they're not. It's a girl, it's Asian, and then like with this, you know, like uh, outfit, then it's probably like from certain religion and then so they kind of like have like their own standard
1: of a person who look like me. Then you find the community that 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 just said that that this is, you know, what we want to build. And I think it was somewhat unexpected for me that, that, that I gained so much personally from this project because through this, I now, you know, have met and worked with all these people that I otherwise wouldn't have. Hopefully for people that are coming up behind us, um, I will use this opportunity to say that part of the project is to establish a scholarship for younger students Mm -hmm. um, and for them to, you know, come up behind us and for us to remove some of these barriers. So whether it be financially or a sense of community or somebody to turn to that, that they, you know, when they, have issues, they can, you know, find this network, hopefully, mm-hmm. or this community uh, of people.
0: What could the people around you, who you work with or study with, what could they do to be more mindful of this baggage, this overhead that their students, their female students, their non-white students, their students who are from not college educated backgrounds anything that someone brings that separates them from the others in your, in your environment, what could they do to be more supportive or more thoughtful about how they interact with people?
2: Listen to this podcast, this, this <laughs> Truly, I, I mean, like, a lot, a lot of the burden is just lack of understanding. And, and it's it's nobody's fault in, in that. I think that when you're thinking about women, people of color, I think the easy thing to do is like, here's just one way to fix it all. But as you have heard, our experiences have been so different. It's like, yes, we are all Asian, but then there's Asian American uh-huh. there. There are people that like uh, sec- English as a second, second language, Different backgrounds: Indonesian, Taiwanese, Vietnamese. Like there are so many subtleties there that impact how we interact and impact the burden that we have to to bear in, in doing the same job. So for me, like if you just take the time to dig a little bit deeper, it's not like you have to do an entire thesis on it. Just understand <laughs> just that there are subtleties, um, and and just that recognition for me is 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 enough.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, um listen uh, 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 um, and, and you know, observe and, and you know, take your time to reflect and, and notice that, that, that there are these subtleties and there are these differences.
3: I would emphasize that, like, it should come from both sides. Yes, we want people understand us, but then, you know, we also need to understand them. In any case, the best way is to meet in the middle.
0: Jessica Hua, Umi Arifim, And Sheila Poo are scientists who study animals very unlike humans, but in naming an aspect of a creature they
2: study it's clear that what they learn is quite applicable to our lives. We know the world is being impacted in so many negative ways and and we think about pollutants being one of those things. It's often doom and gloom, but one positive thing I'd like to to leave is that um, wood frog. These wood frogs are susceptible to pesticides. But if they are exposed to a very small amount of pesticides early in life, then that can allow them to be more tolerant later in life. And this is really, really exciting because that means it's a very fast way for some of these amphibians to deal with pollutants in the environment. That being said, pollutants are terrible for the environment. But there is,
0: <laughs> but that's a very adaptive species. So that's, that's a cool little piece of information about it.
1: Um, I'll go with, so there is a bamboo breeding frog in Taiwan. So it breeds in these bamboo stumps that when you cut them, there's a little bit of water and they, the females lay their eggs. And it is a rare species that has biparental care, meaning that both the male frogs and female frogs take care of their young which in and of itself is already rare for amphibians as opposed to mammals, which take care of their young for, I don't know, Jess has kids, 18 years. <laughs> um, but but, but, uh, um, but so, so they take care of it in this fun way where the males will stay with the eggs and make sure that the eggs um, are developing properly until they hatch. And then once the eggs hatch, the females will come back periodically to feed the tadpoles until they finish their tadpole stage and become young frogs. So I think I like to think of it as a um, nice example of uh, equitable care between the sexes.
3: <laughs> okay, my turn. It's hard, but then maybe I just pick the 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 group that I'm currently studying. You know, like this Oranid uh, frogs, the tadpole that has like a belly sucker. So why it's fascinating? Because no other frogs, you know, in the anurans world bearing this kind of, you know, like, adaptation, this kind of, like, sucker. So only, like, in this uh, particular group of ranids in Asia, and a few uh, buffonids in the neotropical world. So I would, like, have the analogy of, like, hanging on with these frogs, like these tadpoles. So the tadpole has, like, as I mentioned at the beginning, that, like, you know, it has, like, belly suckers. so it's, like, will attach to the rock, then it's just like, you know, not wipe off. It because it's really, really strong. So then it's basically just like, please hang on. Hang on in whatever you do, you know, and then just believe. Believe that, you know, you'll get there to whatever you do, whatever happened. So it's just like a reminder also, not only because it's fascinating, that's why I started but then it's so cool to just like remind me that like life is not easy, but then... Just hang
0: on. In other words, these creatures take care of each other, adapt to a changing climate, and never give up. That's a recipe for success if I've ever heard one. This episode featured three herpetologists included in the book Women in Herpetology, 50 Stories from Around the World. Thanks to Jessica Hua, Umilela Arifin, and Sheila Sinlan Poo for sharing their work and their passion with us. You can learn more about the book on babblery.com. Nature recordings are from the interviewees, and the song "Poison Dark Frog is by Julian Winter on freemusicarchive.org. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to The, the Babblery. Babblery. Subscribe to The Babblery on your favorite podcast platform or visit b-a-b-b-l-e-r-y.com to access more episodes. The Babblery is produced with support from KSQD Radio in Santa Cruz, California.